Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, February the 18th, 2024. A lot of chatter this week amongst media folk like myself about a piece in the New Yorker on whether or not media is prepared for an extinction level event, certainly not the first or the last kind of piece on this, particularly in terms of the impact of the internet. Lots of promise of the internet originally, but it doesn't generally seem to have had uh, a particularly positive impact on journalists, writers, podcasters, and particularly this New Yorker piece uh, writes in the context of AI, seeing AI as the final extinction level event that will kill all dinosaurs uh, like <laughs> myself podcasters another fellow dinosaur is a man i've known a long time probably 20 years marshall poe uh, he's a historian writer thinker polemicist and he's the founder and editor of the new books network um it has half a million people download their content every month a uh, million downloads uh, they're on their 25th thousandth episode i think um and then makes him the largest podcast in the world and marshall is joining us from northampton massachusetts uh marshall congratulations on new book networks i don't know if you saw this uh new yorker piece you and i have read and perhaps even written many of these types of pieces over the years mm -hmm. are we finally at that extinction level event i wanted to talk to you because I'm not calling you a dinosaur, but you're certainly impacted by everything that's happened in media at New Books Network. So you're not just a theorist, you're actually seeing it up front. Yeah, I'm a practitioner. I think I would put it that way. Um, I don't think we're at any sort of point where there'll be an extinction level development, at, at least for operations like the New Books Network. One thing I would say is that if it were not for the new technologies that were developed by engineers and the big tech companies, the New Books Network would not exist. Because one of the things they did was that they um, kind of dropped the floor out of what it cost to produce and distribute audio and video. Um, prior to that, and I've been in this since 2007, it was just not possible to produce something like the New Books Network. Just as background, what we do is we interview academic authors about their books. Um, you are not going to hear that in the mainstream press anywhere. Uh, they did get some attention, but actually very little. So it was really only because of these tech companies and the internet that we were able to do what we do. Now, how to pay for it is a kind of different and more difficult question. Yeah, and how to pay for it in terms of both presenting and promoting it and of course generating revenue i'm guessing and maybe correct me if i'm wrong on the one hand in 2024 compared to when you and i started talking in the early 2000s it's pretty easy to uh distrib create distribute uh high quality audio and video it's very cheap and very easy you don't need to be an engineer to do it on the other hand, the problem is, of course, how to actually monetize it. Is that fair? Yeah, that that that's fair. Uh, the amount of material that is being produced is truly astonishing. 
I, I can't give you the number of terabytes that are involved or the number of watching or listening hours, but the, the amount of material that is being produced is, is truly awesome. Uh, we occupy a very small space there and a very narrow kind of niche, and that is people that are interested in books. Uh, and uh, obviously, the, most of the book industry is about selling books. What we try to do is we uh, talk to the authors of those books in order to give a kind of telegraphic resume of what they say in their books. And this is a great convenience, I think, for uh, readers, but also for students in the sense that they kind of boil the book down. Um, if you're going to talk to an author, I just published a book and it's 400 pages long. Yeah, I know. We're going to come to it a little bit later, touch yeah, on the book right. on uh, the reality of the My Lai massacre and the myth of the Vietnam War, which in, in, in a sense is a passion project of yours. You're trained yeah. in this. Is, yeah, that's right. That's right. But, you know, uh, getting publicity for a book like that is, is, is very difficult given the number of books that are published. So what we try to do is connect experts, academic authors, researchers, journalists with the broader public. And we try to do it in a way that's convenient for them. And that happens to be audio. And this goes back to what you said. Essentially, the cost of producing and distributing these things is, is much, much lower than it ever was. But given the amount of competition that's involved, that is the thousands and zillions of terabytes of information that's out there for people. It, it is hard to be heard. And if it's hard to be heard, then it's hard to pay for it because uh, after a lot of back and forth about what the business model for podcasting would be, we've kind of settled on advertising. Um, initially, when I founded the New Books Network, I was a professor since 2007. And my idea was uh, that it would be a 501c3, a nonprofit, and then it would be supported by philanthropists or it'd be supported by educational institutions or foundations. I approached them. They were not interested. I kind of understand that in the sense that podcasting was new and uh, untried, uh, but I ran it for 10 years and basically paid for everything myself. And then I kind of reached this point. I had quit my job as a professor to do it full time. And I came to this point where I had to find a way to pay for it. And that turned out to be advertising, which you know, happily, other companies, Megaphone in this instance, which has been purchased by Spotify, uh, they they created technology that enabled us to put ads in the podcast. And that's essentially how we and most podcasters pay for what we do. So um, to talk numbers, um, Marshall, and you, you can decline to answer this if you want. Um, if you get around a million downloads a month on Megaphone, what kind of revenue is that generating? Well, there are two kinds of revenue. One is called uh, programmatic advertising, and it's run by Megaphone Spotify, and there's direct advertising. And it really depends on the kind of podcast that it is. So for us, we're very lean. There are only three people that work here, uh, and we don't pay ourselves a lot. So the programmatic revenue, you know, it may be between fifteen and 25000 a month. That's depending. not bad. Fifteen or 25000 from just automated ads up on... Um... But that's also including all your backlist. It's not just. For yeah, the... that's the whole thing. And, and our backlist is important to us because we think we produce material that's evergreen. You know, if somebody writes a history of the revolution and it's the greatest history of the Russian revolution ever, people are going to listen to it in 50 years. So the back catalog is important. But you also have to put it in the context of everything that we have to pay for. And again, there are three employees. There's health care. There's. Um, you know, HR services, there's taxes, there's accountants, there's the whole nine yards. Uh, we're at a break-even point right now, I would say. Last year, we lost a lot of money because there was a big dip in um, 
ad sales, programmatic ad sales. I think everybody felt this, and you, you may know this, but last year was a horrible year for all of podcasting. A lot of big companies went out of business. They don't have a model that's like ours because they were producing scripted shows that cost a lot to make. Ours don't. They're simple interviews with authors. So we can actually um, produce them efficiently and distribute them efficiently. But when the ad revenue declines like that, uh, yeah, <laughs> we've just talked about existential crises. Well, a lot of podcast companies felt that and they went out of business. Uh, so uh, uh, as you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, earlier this week, um, uh, I did a show with Paul Starobin, a veteran Russian reporter. As it happens, he has a new book out, Putin's Exiles, and we talked the day before Navalny's uh, assassination. Yeah. Uh, he's a, a, a very smart guy. He has a show uh, on uh, the new book networks. H how does it work? Do you just invite people on, or do, can anyone be on the new, new books network? No. Uh, essentially, the space that we've carved out is serious people talking to other serious people. And I've known Paul for quite a while now, and he's a serious person. And I know that he will invite authors who are serious. I mean, one of the things that you and I have been interested in for a long time is curation. Like, how do you make sure that what you're producing is of a high quality or is of high quality? And the way that we do it at the New Books Network is the people who become hosts are almost all graduate students and professors. They're almost all professors, to be honest with you. So these are people who have been trained. Uh, they write books themselves. They write articles. They know the material really well. They're area experts. And then they invite their colleagues. So the, the kind of vetting or the curation part of it is done by the hosts. And in the case of Paul, we host his podcast. Uh, he invites uh people that he knows who have written serious books that have been published by serious publishers to talk about their books for an hour. So it, it really kind of makes our job easier. Now, I should also say that all of these people, all of the hosts are really, in a sense, volunteers. They just How many hosts do you have on, on the About a thousand worldwide. And uh, I should say we have hosts on every continent, although I thought about that. And I don't know, is Antarctica? Do you share your revenue with those hosts? So they we, do it for free. Yeah, it's a good question. And we were doing that before last year. And last year was such a bad year that we had to stop doing that. And we all took big pay cuts and so on and so forth. So, you know, we are not in the greatest position financially. As I say, I think that we're break even. Um, I mean, I'm happy to be one of the few people that actually does make a living from podcasting uh, most. And I mean, 99.9% .9 of people who do it don't. Uh, they do it because they're passionate about it. Um, and, and so, you know, we're in kind of a fortunate situation. Uh, in the sense that we produce a lot of material, the materials are very high quality. You know, whatever you say about Google, if you produce good content regularly over a long period of time, Google likes you. And we produce good content regularly and have uh, for over 15 years. So we 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 have a nice page rank. That's Larry Page. Right. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. And I, uh, <laughs> you know, I did a I did my new book network search on Google, and you do show up. But you also noted beforehand, and this comes back to extinction level event. Now, when the dinosaurs got wiped out, lots of other species went too. You're very much impacted by the giants or their decisions. You mentioned that some changes in Apple's podcast policies had a, a, a serious impact on you. So when Google or Apple or Amazon sneeze, you get pneumonia. Is that fair? Yeah, that's 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 correct. Now, I, I should I I. I'm a big fan of Apple in the podcasting space because they created it and they deserve credit for that. Um, 
the only podcast app that existed when I started, well, it's not quite true. I think Stitcher was around, was the Apple podcast app. And so I'm very grateful for them for doing that. Now, they, they have a lot of different fish to fry. And one of them is, you know, how to deliver this material to listeners. And so recently, as you said, they made a change that changed the way that they do automatic downloads. As you know, on your phone, if you subscribe to a podcast channel, usually the episodes are automatically downloaded. Well, they slightly altered the way that they do that. And in the case of the New Books Network, this uh, resulted in about, well, in a 300,000 a month decline in the number of downloads we get. Since the downloads are what carry the ads, that means a result in ad, a result. Well, wait, isn't it? It's an interesting, because I have to deal with this as well. I'm, I understand what you're talking about. Though that Those numbers are probably inflated because when it's automatically downloaded, people often aren't listening. So isn't it? Yeah, I'm Apple trying to be a little bit more honest. You know, yeah, and this is this is why listen. this is why I'm trying to say nice, and I want to say nice things about Apple because this may improve the listener experience, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, for example, since uh, most of podcasting is uh, based on advertising revenue, we want to be able to tell the advertisers that they're actually getting what they're paid what they're paying for. And I agree with you that I think that it, in in especially early in podcasting the numbers were inflated and a lot of episodes were being downloaded and were not being listened to. So it was a scam. They were promoting. Well, I, but... I don't know if I would say scam and we try not to scam anybody, but we, you know, they we're still working it out. Exactly. We're working out how exactly these things should be delivered. And, and, and I've told people in discussions about this, that it's probably a good thing in the long term because it increases trust between advertisers and podcasts. We don't want to charge advertisers for anything we aren't delivering. I do not want to do that. And I can tell you that, you know, in the case of the New Books Network, we get direct ad deals that I don't do because I, you know, somebody comes with some product or something like this and says, I want to advertise the New Books Network. And I say to them, you've got the wrong audience. You're, I'm, you're, I'm not going to be able to help you. I've done some right. Yeah. You just thought, I just don't feel comfortable doing it. Like, I, I don't want, I don't want yeah. to. So it, the, the trust yeah. is, is, is all important. Yeah, what would you say true. to Marshall, to somebody, and I'm sure you have this conversation, people pitching you neither new shows or new ideas. What would you say to people who want to start their own podcast? Is it a bit late now? I, I would say uh, do it if you're extraordinarily passionate about something that's pretty narrow. And the example I always give is um, plumbing. I don't know. I did a lot of house. Re I've renovated three houses, and I always hired plumbers to do the, the plumbing. and um, I looked it up the other day. There are uh, there are top ten lists of plumbing podcasts. Now, to you and me, that may just seem like why would you ever listen to that? But for plumbers, that's a great thing. Like that, that they have something to listen to that's about their industry, and they share information, tips, tricks, so on and so forth. That's a good thing. That's the that is really the internet at its best. That's the best thing the internet. Narrow casting. Well, yeah, that was narrow casting. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, what about so so that's good. So if you do have for our audience out there, if you do have a plumbing show, start one. But yeah, if you want to just right. have a, the competition is pretty stiff. It turns out there are ten of them. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's always room for an eleventh. There might be better. Eleven thousand yeah. or eleventh yeah. million. A, a couple of other questions on the podcast market, Marshall. Uh, 2004, of course, social media was invented. That's when you and I began talking about all this stuff. Has social media been, how does social media play out in the extinction level narrative, whether it's true or not? Is it 
was it the promise or is it killing now serious podcast networks like uh, the New Books Network? Well, I don't think it's very helpful for traditional media, that is print media, but uh, it's pretty helpful for us. Um, it, it's interesting because we don't have a big social media presence. Uh, we, we did experiments with it on Facebook and on Twitter to see if posting a lot of stuff on Facebook and Twitter would increase our audience. It didn't. And you know, I, I don't know what to make of that exactly. The, the kind of people that are interested in what uh, we do are going to find us by word of mouth. And that's usually what happens on the NBN. So we, we have never paid for promotion. We have never run any ads uh, for ourselves anywhere. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that you just hear about. Like if you're a plumber, you're going to hear about the plumbing podcast. If you're an academic or interested in serious nonfiction books, you're going to hear about the New Books Network. And you might hear about it on social media. You might not. I don't know. But, you know, we don't make a great effort there. Now, what do I think about social media in general? I'm not terribly happy with it. Uh, I, I'm not on I, I, Twitter. I don't do Twitter. Um, we do have a Twitter um, account for the New Books Network. I'm on Facebook, but only to talk to my sister because <laughs> I can't get her on the phone. Um, so, you know, I, I I do think there's been tremendous fragmentation as a result of social media. Um, people used to buy newspapers and go through them, and now they basically look at their newsfeed and whatever is there is there. Um, I'm very disappointed with most of it because it's not well curated. Uh, and anybody who fixes that is going to do very well. Um, but for our business and for you know our mission, which is public education, it's not terribly helpful or significant. And then the other end of the the uh, the other end of the spectrum when it comes to new media are platforms like Substack that empower creatives, journalists, writers like yourself and, and myself uh, to 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 broadcast to put their podcasts together. Are you, in a sense, a, a broad version of, of Substack? What do you make of these new platforms like Substack, which well, are like, you know, I, for I, I, professional well, journalists and writers to traditional media? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, one thing I will say that is that what we try to do on the New Books Network, again, is public education. It's informational. We don't have opinions. We don't take political ads. We don't do any politics. Uh, we try to ma maintain a kind of you know, neutrality about things. We let the host pick the books. We don't pick the books. Um, I, I do find that much much of social media and especially Twitter is heavily politicized. And I find this annoying because I'm not particularly interested in people's, I mean, random people's opinions about things. Substack, I don't know about. I know Paul Sterobin has is thinking about having a Substack and I would encourage him to do it because it is a great way to reach people who value what you think. But you and I are old enough to remember blogs, right? So yeah, so they're, this could they're be a fad. Up. Blogs were—I I don't know if they were a fad or not, but um, it might go away. They might go away. One thing that hasn't gone away is either Marshall Poe or his New Books Network. It's certainly the oldest, I think, network of podcasters. Uh, has twenty-five thousand episodes. It's the largest, and he's kept the business going. It's very impressive. Well, thank you. Yeah, I want to remind everyone when it comes to advertising, Marshall, that we are supported by Liberties, a wonderful new quarterly journal of culture and politics. So all our guests, including Marshall Poe, are going to get uh, annual complimentary subscriptions. Another kind of public education. Uh, I'm going to run a short feature on liberties. And then I want to come back with Marshall Poe and talk about universities and education 
and how we're supposed to get a, a private, uh, a public education in an age where everything seemingly is politicized. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with the great Marshall Poe, <laughs> who is the founder and editor of the New Books Network, the oldest and perhaps the largest still podcast platform in the world. Uh, Marshall, uh, you when we first talked in the early 2000s, I think, uh, I'm not sure if you were still an academic, but I always thought of you in an academic. You have an academic manner. You were educated like me at Berkeley. You're a Russian historian. You've taught at Harvard and all sorts of other distinguished places. You recently had an interesting piece about universities on the real on real clear politics. America, you don't understand academics at all. And it was quite controversial. What did you argue about universities, the reality of universities in America in the 2020s? Yeah, well, part of this has to do with my experience with the New Books Network, and I deal with academics all the time. I, you know, as I say, we publish 25,000 episodes, which is 25,000 books and, you know, 25,000 interviews with academics. I see their research. And also it has to do with my own personal experience in academia. And I don't know about you, but I went to college to learn and not to engage in politics. Now, of course, I did a little of it. It was always there. I went to Grinnell College, which was a very liberal institution, I suppose. I didn't know that when I got there. But what, mostly what I did is I went to the library and uh, I learned to be a Russian historian. And then I went on to Berkeley, a place that is famous for campus politics. And it was there. Uh, I remember going to a protest about apartheid. I think that's the only one I went to. But mostly I went to the library and went to seminars and this kind of thing. And at that point in my career, really the research itself, the research and teaching were like ends in themselves. You know, it's a very dangerous thing to do to go to graduate school, as you know, especially in the humanities or something like history or political science, because your chances of getting a tenure track job are not good. Um, so you must be doing it for some other reason. They're more or less dangerous than starting a podcast now. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's well, it's more it's much more dangerous. Similar sort to, of personal extinction event. Probably. Yeah, well, you have to invest a lot more time in it. It takes eight, you know, it took me eight years to get a PhD in Russian history. So that was a big investment of my time. My twenties were spent there doing that. Um, but if you look at the media, the impression you get of professors and researchers like us is that you know we're all campus radicals. And I just don't think this is true. Uh, it is true that there are some very loud voices. No doubt about this. And you can see them on Twitter uh, and they gain big followings and they say very controversial things, many of which I think are not true. Uh, and they gain a certain amount of, I don't exactly know what they're getting from it. I, I never did that. And my colleagues in Russian history never did that. Uh, what we were interested in doing was going to the library, the archive and doing research and then uh, publishing books, books that then they could come and talk about on the New Books Network. And the point of this was, of course, well, first of all, it was gratifying because the research is fun. I mean, I, I like doing it. 
uh, I'm trained to do it. I'm pretty good at it. So are my colleagues. And we just enjoy doing it. You know, this is kind of another myth about professors is that they don't work hard. They work really hard. Uh, you know, people think, oh, they get three months off in the summer. I don't know anybody who actually goes and puts their feet up on their desk and sits around for three months. They go to archives, they go someplace, they go to the lab and they work. And what they produce is research. Uh, and then they take that research into... It sounds a fairly sensible, um, controversial thing. But the piece you wrote garnered many comments, very controversial, as you noted before, most of which were rather negative. Why is this argument that most professors just want to do their work and be left alone? Why is this so controversial? I think it's because the people that promote the line that academia is a tremendously radical place that is bent on destroying America... Uh, is being pushed by, well, the kind of usual suspects. Um, I'm not going to left or right or both. Uh, it's it's right. It's almost exclusively right. Um, and they want to see that they don't they don't like the ideas that many academics produce. They will cherry pick like crazy. They will take someone who is particularly loud and says something particularly outrageous, and then they will amplify that. And the idea is that this is representative of all of us. It's not representative of all of us. I mean, what I say in the piece is people think of us as political radicals, but really we're just geeks, we're like pathetic geeks. I mean, one anecdote that I tell, actually, I'm not sure I told it in this piece is I was at the Institute for Advanced Study, you know, where Einstein was, Princeton, and there are a bunch yeah. of mathematicians there. I was a fellow there. And I told this mathematician what I did. And this mathematician said, man, you are a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> when a mathematician tells you that you're geeky or nerdy, you should probably listen. You know, like when I was in, again, when I was teaching, when I was a professor, I, I, Russian history was really all I thought about. I, I, I didn't think about politics. But I, 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 I'm not sure I'm entirely in agreement with you, Marshall, because some people would be listening and thinking, well, this, this middle of the road thing, I mean, it's the old... Anne Richards joke from Texas, uh, anything in the middle of the road is roadkill. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that in itself is a political statement, that that in itself defines perhaps the ideal of objectivity, which many people question. You just wrote an interesting book on My Lai, the reality of the My Lai massacre and the myth of the Vietnam War, an enormously controversial event. Uh, I went to Wikipedia, where you and I, I think, we we share a particular interest in Wikipedia. There's an interesting Wikipedia uh, page on the so-called My Lai Massacre. Is it possible, Marshall, to write about My Lai without making political statements yeah, in this a really is a, objective, scientific sense? Yeah, uh, there's a quip about democracy that I really like. Um, democracy is a myth, but we'll sure miss it when it's gone. Yeah, that's it's a good one. That, that, yeah. that wasn't Winston Churchill. I don't know. It might as well be. Everything gets attributed to Winston Churchill. But it's the same way with objectivity. Yeah, there's no such thing as objectivity, but we're going to miss it when it's gone. And, you know, when I wrote the book about my lie, I knew that, you know, again, as I told you in the pre-interview, my I was born on an army base. My dad was in the Vietnam era army. My uncle fought in Vietnam. And I was just interested in seeing what happened because it was so anomalous to me. I knew these people. And I thought that they would not do something like this. I, I, I kind of went in with that bias that they wouldn't. They did. Um, but, you know, I, I looked at the documents. There are 18,000 pages of transcripts, interviews with the perpetrators. I read them all. It took me 10 years. 5,000 pages of primary documents. 
and I just tried to figure out what happened and why it happened. And that that you know, and I did go into it trying to be as absolutely objective as I could. Um, and, and I think that's the spirit in which most, I won't say all, because there are these things, activist scholars now, which to me is almost a contradiction in terms. Um, it, it, it really is the way most of us do it. We want to find it, out. It, it's one of the problems, though, that the critic from the right suggests that there is an objective position and all these academics are all leftists living in places like Northampton, Massachusetts or Berkeley, California, and that they need to be objective. Don't we have to acknowledge that objectivity itself is a, an ideal which isn't realizable? And Yeah, I think, that's, I, think, I think it's one of these things that is philosophically indefensible, and I don't think there's any question about this. You can't be truly objective. Yeah, I mean, just to choose to write a book or invest right. 10 yeah. years of your time in, in trying to figure out right. my lie is a political decision. Right. You cannot be truly, strictly objective. But I'm reminded of another thing. I don't know who told me this, but, it, you know, it is also true that no operating room can be completely disinfected. But we don't operate in pigsties. We do the best we can. And, and that's what I try to do. And that's the way I was trained. I mean, my advisors, both as undergraduate and, and, and in graduate school, said that politics had no place in the classroom. One of the things I used to tell my students when I taught was, even when I taught things that were related to current affairs, I said to them, you will never know what I think because it is irrelevant politically. I, you will not be able to glean any of my sort of political beliefs, and I have them, everybody has them, from what I say in this class because that does not matter. What I'm trying to do is tell you, in the case of history, what happened and why it happened. So whatever I might think politically about it, irrelevant, you will never know it. And I, I will do the best that I can to keep but it. Why not? Why not be honest? Why not right up front? This is what I think. And this is why I've done this, done this, uh, this book, this research. And, 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 and you may agree, you may not. Well, I did do that. I, in the, in the Me Live book, I think I did do that. I did think I do. And I've been being interviewed about it. I say I did have a kind of a personal stake in this. But go back to Russian history for a second. I, I'm from Kansas originally, uh, not exactly a hotbed of academia. Um, I was introduced to Russian history by a guy in Iowa. Again, not exactly, you know, California or Massachusetts. Uh, these people introduced me to it. I had no Russian ancestors. I knew nothing about Russia. Uh, it, <laughs> I did not know, and this is the truth, Andrew, when I got to college, that to be a Russian historian, you had to speak Russian. I did not know that. You didn't? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I, I had no idea. Um, so you had you to know, go to Grinnell to find that out? Well, yeah. I mean, I was, I was a kid, you know, I was a basketball player in high school and I was, you know, I was more interested in basketball than anything else. And, uh, but I was a broadly interested person and I got to Grinnell and, uh, you know, what I found there were people like my advisor, Dan Kaiser, who tried for objectivity. Who was your advisor at Berkeley? Was it Malia? Uh, no, it was Nicholas Rezanovsky of Blessed Memory. Because so, they had a wonderful, uh, when when we were there in the 80s, I was in political science, a wonderful uh, Russian history department. I'm curious, uh, you, you're not still a, I mean, you, you don't write that much about Russia, but what do you make of the headlines this weekend about Navalny? Is history just repeating itself? Yeah, well, it's just, a, just to digress for a minute, uh, I studied, um, for 30 years of my life, I studied early East Slavic history. This is not a sexy topic. And so when Putin wrote that essay in 2021, and then he appeared on Tucker Carlson talking about uh, Russian history, I thought, this is my moment. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is the moment at which I actually have something to say. And I just wrote a piece and sent it off about what Putin said. You know, and again, that's a kind of broader point. You don't know when the stuff that we know is going to be valuable. Sure, it looks obscure right now, but you don't know. I mean, uh, it, it, there had never been a news hook for early Russian history in my 30 years until now. But then there was. And I had something to say about it. And I can tell you, I have 30 years of experience in doing it. And so I was able to say, you know, what Putin has to say here about this particular issue is wrong. And no historian agrees with it. Um, so in that sense, you know, it, it, the, the things that look obscure may not be obscure in some future. Um, and I think it's important to keep training people like me and other people that do these kinds of obscure things because you don't know when it's going to become valuable. About Navalny, I don't know. I, I've not looked into it at all. I mean, obviously, it's suspicious. I mean, what else can you say? Well, no, I mean, it goes without saying that he was murdered. But yeah, uh, what what is it? Is it just history repeating itself of czars or communist well, czars murdering opposition? Well, I'm not a, you know, I, 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 you know, historical analogies are extremely useful, and we use them all the time, whether we know we're doing it or not. Um, it, it is certainly the case that authoritarian dictators like Vladimir Putin don't like opposition, and. So it's reasonable to assume that he killed Navalny, right? Do you think it makes sense? Maybe revise the question because my first question was a bit muddy. Um, does this murder of Navalny, which seems fairly self-evident by Putin or his, his regime, does it make Putin weaker or stronger? I don't know. You'd have to ask Paul Serobin about that. I, I, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I think personally, and again, I don't follow it terribly closely because I'm too busy processing interviews for the New Books Network. Um, he's very strong right now, anyway. Uh, well, let's end, um, uh, Marshall, with returning to this issue of public education and politics, and trying not to to do politics, which you try not to do in the New Books Network. And in America in 2024, where it's conceivable that Donald Trump will be re-elected and he's been fairly overt about shutting down democracy, at least for a day or an hour, or however he wants to put it, to outrage people like yourself and, and like me. Uh, what are the challenges and responsibilities, the political responsibilities of public intellectuals like yourself and public intellectual networks like New Books Network, when American democracy isn't in its best shape. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, I think currently uh, our job is to provide people with the best information they can get. And the information that we convey to people is produced by experts, that is professors and researchers. Some of them may talk about American politics. We have a channel, New Books in American Politics. We have another channel, New Books in Political Science. And you can go hear what these experts have to say about it. I mean, that's our primary role right now. Can I imagine a future in which the New Books Network would take some political stand? I can. I, well, I, I mean, if, if Donald yeah. Trump comes to power and he says, I don't want Marshall Poe's <laughs> New Books Network because it's full of leftist academics. Well, yes, that would be a time to take a stand. Yes, I, I don't see that happening. Maybe a bit late, Marshall. It might be a little bit late. You're right. I don't know. Um, but for now... You know, what we do is we try to inform people and and, you know, we do the best we can, you know, just to do that job alone. And, you know, that's important, uh, you know, because we're part of the kind of intellectual discourse and, you know, having good information from experts is an important thing um, so you can make the right decisions. Uh, so, yeah, th this is the role that I see for us right now.
And, and one way to think about the about the New Books Network, and this is an analogy I use sometimes, is we're a lot like Oxford University Press or something. You know, we're an institution, we're an academic institution, we're, we're part of the, the academic ecosystem. And our job is to convey what experts know to the masses at large. Um, and, and that's really the kind of spirit I, I went into it with. I mean, one of the things I fantasize about is that, I mean, do you know who the president of Oxford University Press is? Uh, it's not one of the things I fantasize. No, you see, you don't. You know, and that would be my wish for the New Books Network, that like I, people didn't even know I was involved. Like no, just, When I it, fantasize, Marshall, I often fantasize about you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Keep up the good work. All right. Thanks very much, Andrew.